St. James Lutheran Church. I'm glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, before we begin, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first of all, uh, for those of you who are attenders of St. James, we are working on a plan uh, to reopen St. James. We hope that sometime, uh, sometime hopefully um, in June at the latest, uh, we'll be meeting again, uh, worshiping together. Uh, we are going to do this uh, judiciously and as wisely as we can. It will probably look different than what we're used to, uh, but we'll have the chance to be together. And for those of you who, and I know that some of you aren't able to worship with us even when we do reopen sometime this summer, uh, for whatever reason, maybe uh, you're sick or uh, you are in the high-risk category for sickness or you live with somebody who's in the high-risk category for sickness and it's not safe for you to be out, um, guaranteed we will continue doing the live stream even when we begin worshiping together in person so that nobody uh, will miss out on the services and on the study of God's word. And as always, uh, please, if you want to have communion, get a hold of me and we can make that happen in as small a group as you would like. And the second announcement is the usual one. Uh, join us for adult Bible study on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're going, we're, we're uh, talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit right now. And also on Wednesday evenings for the past month, we've been talking about, we've been doing a study on how to do Bible study, how to read the Bible more deeply. And so if you're interested in, in being in uh, one of those Bible studies, please email me and let me know, and I will sign you up for that. Those, those studies happen on Zoom at uh, 1030 on Sunday mornings and at 7 o'clock in the evening on Wednesday evenings. So if you'd like to participate, please let me know. Let's begin. We begin as we always do, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, whom we behold in awe and wonder, who has kept covenant and steadfast love with your people from age to age, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have known in our hearts what is right, and yet we did wrong anyway. We have been fascinated by evil, delighted with pleasing ourselves, satisfying our desires, serving ourselves with pleasures. O Lord, great God, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. We know you are a God who delights in goodness. Grant that we too might delight in goodness. We know you are a God who rejoices in peace and justice. Grant that we might be at peace with ourselves and each other. O Lord, great God, grant that our hearts might be filled with the love of justice, with peace beyond understanding, with patience, with joy. These prayers we present to you, O Father, in the name of Jesus the Lamb who was slain and yet lives forevermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your mouth is renewed, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The psalm comes from Psalm 66. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. 
who has kept our soul among the, among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. And yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The Acts reading this morning is from Acts chapter 17. Paul's going to preach the gospel to the thinkers and the intelligentsia who meet in Athens at the Areopagus at Mars Hill to discuss interesting philosophies and interesting religions. He's going to preach a little bit different sermon than he usually preaches. When Paul preaches in the synagogues, he usually preaches through the story of the Old Testament. And here he's going to come at it from a little bit more of a philosophical angle. You're going to see two quotes in the middle of his sermon. Neither quote is from the Old Testament, both from Greek philosophers and poets. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we, lo- in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The gospel reading picks up in John 14 where we ended last time. And Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Healed, restored, born. 
epistle reading for this morning, which is uh, the sermon text, of course. Uh, Let's go back to Romans chapter 5 and read again verses 12 through 21. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now when we started this reading several weeks ago, we started off with verse 12 where Paul says, therefore just as, which of course begs uh, so also to complete it. And if you'll remember, if you've been with us, he actually doesn't get to the so also until he actually gets to verse 18. Meanwhile, He does these two clarifications, uh, one of which is he wants to say, we know that people, even people who didn't receive the law written down in God's word, are sinners. We know that because everybody dies, and death is the result of the fall in Adam. So everybody's sinned. The second qualification he makes is this. He's going to make these comparisons between the two types of being human, in Adam or in Christ, In the two kingdoms, the kingdom where sin and death reigns, and the kingdom where grace and life in Jesus, and as we saw last week, we who are in Christ reign as well. But the clarification is this. These things aren't equal. It's not Adam's kingdom is there and Jesus' kingdom is there, and they're both sort of equal. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of life, The kingdom where you and I reign is far greater in scope and power. There's no way that the kingdom of sin will win. There's no way that being in Adam will be your ultimate destiny. In Jesus Christ, life, grace, forgiveness, justification, he uses that word several times. Ruling and reigning is going to be your destination. Now with those qualifications, it brings us to the statement that he actually wanted to make in the beginning, which is in verse 18. Just as sin came into the world, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. One act of righteousness. 
What is that act of righteousness? Well, look at verse 19. Verse 19 clarifies. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, he's talking about Adam there, Adam disobeys God and introduces death and destruction and lawlessness and depravity into the world. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you get the parallel? In verse 18, it's the act of righteousness by this one man. In verse 19, it explains that this act of righteousness is this one man's obedience. What is Jesus' obedience that actually accomplishes our justification? There's a way of thinking about this in classic Protestantism, and this is true, of course, that what we mean by Jesus obeying is that whereas you and I always disobey the law, Jesus faithfully kept God's law. He never one time disobeyed the Ten Commandments. He never one time went against his Father's will. This is true, right? I mean, I'm not going to gainsay this. But I don't think this is what Paul is talking about here. Remember the problem is who is in charge. The problem is who's going to rule and who's going to reign. Is it going to be the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of rebellion and death and sin, or is it going to be the kingdom of Christ? And the reason why you and I are in this mess is because Adam and Eve's desire to not live under the reign of God. Remember, the, the, the primeval temptation is you can be like God. You don't have to be subservient. You don't have to serve this guy. You can be in charge. And our desire to be in charge, our desire to not submit, is what's in Adam, has, is what's caused all this problem. If that's the case, then the solution, if, if, if the problem is our disobedience, if that's what's caused this whole mess, then the solution is going to have to be tied up somehow in renewed obedience to the sovereign God. Of course, the problem which you you know if you read the Bible or you know if you just take an objective look at the details of your day is that none of us are capable of obeying. We all love to rebel. We all love to be in charge. We all love to do what we want to do. We need somebody else to come and obey for us. What's the type of obedience we're talking about here? Not just obeying the law, but obeying God's design for recapturing the world to himself. God's plan for becoming king again, is tied up in the one whom he's going to send, who's going to suffer and die to get that kingdom back. That's the obedience that you and I couldn't do. The obedience prophesied of the one who's going to come in Isaiah 53. This plan that God has to be king again by sending this one to bear the transgressions of the many and to be wounded with the stripes that belong to us. Only the obedience of Jesus to God's plan for him to die on the cross accomplishes our justification, is the justifying act. Paul talks about this again in Romans, uh, not Romans, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. This is a famous text. We've talked about it in studies here a couple times. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient. There's that word obedient. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Obedient to who? Obedient to his father. Obedient to his father's plan to recapture the kingdom of this world, back for himself through the one true obedience, the one justifying act of this man, Jesus Christ. This is what you and I need. We need Jesus to do this act for us. And he has. He died on the cross and rose from the dead out of obedience to his father to turn the world back to his father. Now, in the classic Jewish telling of God becoming king again, 
And, and Paul in Romans is talking to a large amount. We know from the book of Romans he's talking to a large group of Jewish Christians here. In the Jewish retelling of God getting control of the universe again, the Torah, the law, God's word, the Ten Commandments, plays a huge role. God gave Israel the Ten Commandments so that Israel would know what to do to be God's kingdom on this earth. The problem is is it just doesn't work. And so in verse 20, Paul addresses the law. Now the law came in, so so the, the law is not able to bring about the kingdom. It's going to take the righteous, obedient, justifying act of this one man. The law is not going to be able to do it. That's why he says in verse 20, now the law came in not to get the kingdom for God. The law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in. Now Paul's going to talk about the law in incredibly positive ways. When we get to Romans chapter 7 here in a couple chapters, you'll see that Paul has a high view of the law. Paul agrees with David that the law of God is something to be loved and cherished and memorized and bathed in. But one facet of the law is this. It increases the trespass. How does the law increase our... So the law is holy, right? How does thou shalt not steal increase the trespass? How does it increase our sin? Well, there's two different ways it does this. The first way is that it increases our awareness of sin. And by increasing our awareness of sin, it increases our guilt to sin. The law, knowing what the law says knowing that the law says you shall not steal, it increases our awareness of all the times that we do steal, and it makes us even more culpable. Uh, Imagine this, if you would. This is kind of like a a horror story that we've all heard before, and I don't even know if it's ever happened. But the horror story where there's some sort of commercial flight, and for some reason, the two pilots on board are incapacitated for whatever reason. And somebody in the back, a civilian, has to get chosen to come up and land the plane with the directions from the control towers. It's kind of a horrific scenario to be under. I don't even know if that's ever happened, but it's sort of in my collective conscience that that's a common story we all know. Now let's suppose that that's you on the plane, and you've been called up for whatever reason to have to land the plane. If you crash that plane on landing, it's bad. Everybody's going to die. But who's more culpable? You, or let's say a different plane with a seasoned pilot who's piloted for a long time and knows all the rules of piloting. What if that pilot crashes the plane? Who's more culpable? Well, we would all say it's the seasoned pilot. Why is that? Because the seasoned pilot should know better. The seasoned pilot knows what the rules of landing an airplane do. You don't. You're just sort of making it up with the help from the control tower, but you're just sort of guessing. Both are culpable. In both cases, everybody on the plane is going to die. But the person who's more culpable is the person who knows. The person who knows what they should do, and they don't do it. This is one of the things that Paul means when he says, the law increases the trespass by knowing what to do and not doing it. It makes us even more guilty of sin then we would be if we were complete, we would still be guilty, but even more guilty than we would be if we didn't know anything about God, but we still murdered, we still lusted, we still stole, we still coveted. The knowledge increases the trespass by increasing our awareness of it. The second way that the law increases sin is it actually increases our desire to sin. If you say to me, don't covet, whatever you do, don't covet, 
there's something inside of me that says, I'm going to do it. If somebody says to me, the only thing you can do here is not steal. I will want nothing more than to steal. This is the secret, psychologically, right? This is the secret behind reverse psychology. By telling somebody, here's the thing that you can't do, it manipulates them into wanting to do that. What's more, even behind that, is increases our knowledge of the fact that we are, you know, we don't sin out of convenience. I mean, sometimes I guess we do. Mainly I sin, though, out of a love for sin. I steal not because I need what I'm stealing. I steal because I love to steal. I lust not because I need what I'm lusting, but I lust because I love to lust. I covet not because I really want that person's house, but because coveting is just sweet in my brain. There's something about the law, there's something about us who love to rebel against authority. Remember, that's the primeval sin. You can be like God too. There's something about the law and rules that increases our desire to break those rules. So what are we saying here? What's Paul saying here in verse 20? The law is actually not going to help you get to in Christ. The law is not going to help you reign along with grace and justice and righteousness. The law is not going to justify you. Why? Just pay attention to this. Because our problem is not ignorance. If our problem was ignorance, a rule book would help us. The problem is much more deep-seated than that, whether we're ignorant or whether we're not ignorant. And he's described both groups here. He's described those who have Torah in verse 20. He's described those who are without the law back in verse 13. They're both guilty of sin. They are both susceptible to death and corruption and unrighteousness. The problem is not knowledge. This is, you know, this is kind of a, this is a modern Enlightenment myth that if we can just educate people, we can get rid of racism. That if we just educate people, we can get rid of poverty and income inequality. You know that this is not the case. The problem is not ignorance. The problem is, is that we all want to be God. The problem is that we are all, by nature, rebels against the law. What we need is not more knowledge. What we need is not more education. What we need is liberation. What we need is a revolution. What we need is somebody to come and free the slaves. And that's what Paul's going to describe in the last part of verse 20 and in verse 21. Let's go back to verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, the law does its job, it increases sin. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now he's talked about grace abounding already. Back in verse 15 he says that many died through, through Adam's trespass, but much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Sin abounds, grace abounds too. But the new knowledge here at the end of verse 20 is not just that grace abounds, but that grace abounds all the more. See that last line in verse 20, grace abounded all the more? That's actually just one word. The the, the verb is just one word. Literally in Greek, it's grace superabounded. Grace hyperabounded. He used the word abounded back in verse 13, but now he's going to ramp it up. Where sin abounds, grace hyperabounds. What does that word hyperabounds mean? Well, it has the feeling of like an overflowing cup. A fluid in a cup that flows over and like pours down the sides of the cup, covering the cup up, swallowing the cup up in the liquid that's inside. There's one, one example, one, one more example where Paul uses this word. I'm going to read it to you now. 
uh, just by way of illustration. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is concerned because the people at the church of Corinth he's found out have turned their backs on him. And his feelings are hurt. He's wounded because he's loved these people. He's poured himself. More though, more though, more though than that, though, more though, more though than his personal hurt feelings, he's worried that they've turned their back on the gospel that he preached to them. And so he's like panicking. In 2 Corinthians, he's panicking. He's, he writes several letters to them saying, what's up? Where are you guys at? And then he finally says, I got this message back from my friend Titus. I, I sent Titus to you to find out like, where you're at. And he says this, when I came into Macedonia, when I came into your region, my body had no rest. I was so worried. I was just worried sick about you guys. I was afflicted at every turn. Fighting without, there was like my foes were fighting against me, and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted me by the coming of Titus. I finally got news of you from my friend Titus, who'd been visiting you and met me up in Macedonia. As he told me of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So I was like worried sick, I was upset. But when I found out from Titus that everything was cool between me and you, like, all of that turned to rejoicing. All of that mourning was suddenly transformed into celebration. All of that worry was suddenly transformed into peace. And this is the way he talks about it. He says this, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort now because in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Think of affliction there as a cup. The word overflowing is the same word he uses here, hyperabound. In all of my affliction, in all of my worry, I am now overflowing with joy. I am not now hyper-abounding with joy. Look, this is, the, this is the reality. This is the payout of the gospel, is that however big sin is, the grace of Jesus Christ floods it, covers it up. You can no longer see it and transforms it. And that's why Paul says that we've been talking about the past two weeks. It's not equal ultimacy. It's not that in Adam equals in Christ. In Christ covers up in Adam. It's not that the kingdom of death in the kingdom of life, one just kind of, you know, life just kind of balances out, replaces. No, the kingdom of life covers up the kingdom of death and obliterates it. It makes death without power. It makes sin without sting. It makes unrighteousness. It turns it into righteousness. It doesn't just negate it. It transforms it. There's two meanings. There's two ways that this, this is going to affect you this morning. One I'm just going to touch on, and we're going to get to more of it next week in Romans 6. And then one, I just want to uh, give you a quote and sort of uh, unpack it a tiny bit, and then we'll be done with the sermon. First of all, it affects us on a personal level. Wherever your personal sin abounds, the grace of Jesus Christ abounds more and more. That's what he's saying here in verse 20 and 21. Look, I'm not going to unpack this here because Paul doesn't. He doesn't, tell, he doesn't tell us how this works. He doesn't tell us what it looks like. He doesn't tell us how to tap into that. He will, in Romans chapter 6, say how to access this newfound liberation in Jesus Christ. How can you experience your sin and your weaknesses and your sicknesses and your death being transformed into righteousness and life? He's going to tell us exactly in Romans 6. But let me just state the the foundation of it here. What he says in Romans chapter 5, at the end of Romans 5, is that it is the reality. Righteousness will superabound and cover up unrighteousness. Remember last week I talked about this. Let's make it practical for a second. I talked about the three stages of the rule of sin. The first stage is, and, I, and I've told you I've noticed this in my counseling. The first stage is 
my life needs to be changed, I'm going to fix it. I need to change, I, I need to change the way, my thought patterns, I need to change the way I talk, I need to change these behavioral patterns that I'm in, I'm going to fix it. The second stage will inevitably be, I need to change these things, I just can't do, I keep trying and I maybe, like I try real hard and I guess, but then I just fall right back into those old thought patterns and bad habits. That's the second stage. I need to change, but I can't. The third stage is, I don't really need to change. Inevitably, that's where the rule of sin will take you. It will beat you down until you submit. It will make you say, it'll make you rationalize and say, it's not that big of a deal. These are your two options. Remember, this is from two weeks ago. You can fight it or you can submit to it. Either way, you lose. It's too strong for you to fight. And submission means giving up to the rule and reign of sin. What's Paul saying here? Grace superabounds. God has a plan for your life in Jesus Christ by the power of the baptism in which he baptized you into the death and resurrection of his son. God has the plan and the power to overabound, to superabound, to hyperabound your life with grace. Go to the cross. And when you get discouraged, go back to the cross again. Jesus is the one who rules and reigns in righteousness. He can fix your life personally, but also cosmically. It's not just our personal lives that need healing. It's the whole universe that God is determined to rule and reign. And when he says that wherever, wherever, not just in my personal life, but in every square inch where sin has abounded, the grace of Jesus Christ will hyperabound. He means that. The destiny of this universe is to be ruled and reigned by Jesus Christ. The destiny of this universe is to be repaired and fixed so that you and I in the new creation will look back at our lives now and it will look like heaven now. Uh, The seniors, uh, my high school seniors and I have uh, this year, this past school year, have discussed C.S. Lewis's uh, great short piece of fiction, The Great Divorce, which I would totally encourage you to read that. And a bunch of us read it together, and there's this one, well, there's a ton of great stuff in there. But there's this one great quote in there by a character named George MacDonald, who Lewis meets when he takes a trip to heaven. And George MacDonald says this about our lives now and how this hyperabundance of grace will color our lives, will overflow our lives, will flood our lives with the love of Jesus in such a way that someday we will look back on our lives now, as bad as you think it is, and say, yes. I saw the kingdom of righteousness even then. He says this, in the new creation, when Jesus returns and puts all things to right, in the new creation, the redeemed person's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. Even looking back at our lives now, we will see that our sins, which we remember, and our sorrows will begin to color, be colored with the color of heaven. On the other hand, the condemned man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that's why, at the end of all things, when the sun rises in the new heavens and the new earth, and the twilight turns to blackness in hell, the redeemed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. That's your reality now in Jesus Christ. Hyperabundance of grace. That's your destiny in the future in Jesus Christ. Hyperabundance of grace. Let's live in it together now. Let's pray.
God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the glory and the power of your grace. We pray that you would open our eyes to the reality that we do not live under condemnation, those of us who are in Christ. That we, don't, we do not live in slavery to unrighteousness. That we do not live pinned down by the strength of death. We have been liber- liberated by the hyperabundance of your grace. And now our whole life is colored and transformed and is continually being transformed by the color of your righteousness, of your one justifying obedient act, the act of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to live in that light. Help the people that are listening to this who don't know your son, Jesus, help them to be drawn to this irresistibly. Help them be, to be drawn to your grace, the transforming power. Where rules, where rules fail, whether, the, they're the, whether they are the rules of your word or the rules that we make up for ourselves, so the, the standards of living that we have for ourselves, When those rules fail, show us this free gift of the justifying act of Jesus in our lives. We pray for health. We pray for healing for all those who are sick. We pray that you would bring us back together soon. We pray that you would uh, allow that to happen in safety. Father, I pray for those who are watching this, who are struggling with unemployment and underemployment and concerns about uh, where paychecks are going to come in and how you're going to provide for them. I pray that you would give them the comfort that they need and that you would give them the paychecks that they need, that you would provide sustenance for them. We know that you're a good God and that you promise healing and that you promise provision. You watch over the sparrows and you know the numbers of hair on our head. And so we pray that you would provide for all of us. May our mind and our eyes and our hearts be ever turned towards your glory away from our plans, away from our sin even, and turn onto you and your son's righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. My strength, my soul, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when struggles My all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took our This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he gave to save, till on the
confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. In the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.
and 